Last week had us on a wild ride, which was the perfect way to end 2020. What do you have for the first episode of 2021, Jesse? When a pregnant 19-year-old Marine's wife disappears in the Mojave Desert, suspicion falls on her young husband. But as authorities dig deeper, they uncover a devastating double life that tragically led to her cold-blooded murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where even the loveliest of young loves can quickly become sinister. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. By the way, if you leave a review, we'll send you a sticker. Yes, absolutely. And again, guys, we can't thank you enough for all of the awesome reviews. It was definitely the best Christmas slash New Year's presents we received this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, here we go. New year, new case. Let's do this. So this is a two-peat author. And a two-peat listener recommendation. So big thanks to Eugenie. She also recommended episode number 10, Tall Hot Blonde. So she is two for two, Eugenie, with the awesome cases. And the author of our source material is Shanna Hogan. The book is called Secrets of the Marine's Wife. And she also wrote Dancing with Death, which was about Marjorie Orban, our girl from episode number seven with the seven husbands. So no relation to Hulk Hogan. (laughs) No, not that I know of. Yeah, so Shanna's an absolutely incredible writer. And unfortunately... She had her own tragic circumstances, and Shanna is no longer with us. She died on September 1st of 2020 of this year when she apparently fell, hit her head, and became submerged in the pool at her home. What? Yeah. And so she was married, and they had a 14-month-old baby. And she had been with her 14-month-old son. It looks like they were preparing to go swimming. She had already put him in a life vest. But he was outside of the pool when her husband discovered Shanna floating unconscious in the water. So he pulled her out. I know. Isn't this crazy? So he pulled her out and he performed CPR. But she ended up dying in the hospital a few days later, which is Oh, so, so devastating. But on the silver lining, her organs went on to save four people's lives. So wow. So even in death, she did good. And this is a good reminder to be an organ donor, everyone. Wow, that's crazy. Because we mm-hmm. must have covered her story before that. Then. Yeah, so we did, we did Marjorie way back episode seven. So she was she was still with us when uh, we covered that case. I was surprised. I ran across it um, in an article and I was like, wait, Shanna Hogan, that sounds familiar. And I was already planning on doing this episode. I've been planning on it for months 
So I was really taken aback. She would have been, I think, one of the great true crime writers. She was only in her 30s when she died. So yeah. rest in peace, Shanna. And thank you so much for giving us such wonderful material. And, you know, I hope you're resting easy. And thank you so much for giving your organs to people and saving yeah. saving lives. Yeah, organ donors, the, the only way. That's the way to go, man. So on that sad note, we are going to jump into another sad story. <laughs> Great. Way to start 2021 off with double sad, guys. But here we go. Oh, crap. Andy, I forgot to tell you. This is kind of like a hometownish story for you. Really? Uh-huh. So this, play- this story takes place in 29 Palms in the desert. Oh. It's like right next to our new home. Yeah, your new home. Andy and Dan are building a house. I'm not going to say where exactly, but it's in the (laughs) desert near 29 Palms. And I was like, this is crazy. Also, shout out out to one of our listeners, Brittany, who is a supporter of Love Murder, who just bought a house in 29 Palms as well. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay, Brittany, this one's for you. Yep. (laughs) Okay. On Saturday, August 16th, 2014, a caver named Luca Chiarabini noticed a putrid smell, a hellish combination of gasoline mixed with death coming from one of the many abandoned mine shafts in the Mojave Desert. Luca wondered, could this be it? After all this time, have we found her? This was the moment that volunteer cavers and local police had been both hoping for and dreading. The day they found the broken body of 19-year-old pregnant Marine wife, Erin Corwin. After nearly eight weeks, 2,000 square miles searched and over 5,000 volunteer hours logged, it seemed that the search was finally over. One of the cavers lowered the bucket cam, a 10-gallon bucket outfitted with a GoPro and a floodlight, to see what was causing the smell of decomposition. The camera and the brave caver would report back that their worst fears were confirmed. Aaron had been found, but sadly not alive. The terrifying tale of who had put her down that shaft and why is one of tremendous betrayal, love gone wrong, and a young woman's bright light being snuffed out before her time. This is the story of the murder of Aaron Corwin taken far too soon. Oh. No, this is a sad one, guys. Aaron was born in July of 1994 in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and fostered by Bill and Lore Hevelin when she was only three weeks old. The Hevelins were already parents to five other children, a mix of biological and adopted, and when Lore first held baby Aaron, she knew she was destined to become the sixth. Aaron's adoption would eventually be finalized when she was three. Aaron was smart and introspective with a huge love of animals. I thought this is funny. She managed to train the family cats to shake, sit, and lie down. Oh my God, I love that. Isn't that amazing? Do you think you could train Quincy to do that? We were trying, but (laughs) cats just kind of do whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm really impressed that she managed to yeah. <laughs> train her family cats to do she anything. she had them when they were kittens. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she also joined the 4-H club. Shout out to 4-H members out there. I was in 4-H from first grade till I graduated high school. <laughs> Love it. 
Future Farmers of America, baby. I mean, that's a separate club, but it's basically the same thing. Um, she also eventually adopted a rescue horse named Autumn and later another named Riley. She became a dedicated equestrian and matured into a gorgeous, petite teenage girl. Erin was 5'2", about 120 pounds, with light brown hair, blue eyes, and alabaster skin. She seriously looks like a porcelain doll come to life. Really? Yeah, she's she's just, you can tell too in the pictures, she's like very shy and she's very sweet. She has like a sweet smile in all of her pictures, um, but she looks very nice. When Erin was a teen, she met John Corwin at the barn. John was a year older than Erin and a lot like her, quiet, reserved, earnest. On Erin's 16th birthday in 2010, John asked Lore for permission to ask Erin on a date. Lore thought John was a polite and upstanding young man, so she granted the request. The two like-minded teens fell deeply and quickly in love the way only teenagers can. By the summer of 2011, John had graduated high school and was preparing for the Marines and boot camp. The two were already discussing marriage. So young. So young, but I mean, not surprising. Not surprising at all. Erin had also started a cashier job at Tractor Supply Company where she met her best friend, Jesse Trentum. Erin loved caring for the baby chicks that came into the store every spring and hanging out with her bestie after work, scarfing fries at Sonic or just driving around to talk. John and Erin remained hot and heavy while he was at boot camp and training in Oklahoma City while Erin finished her senior year of high school. In 2012, John was stationed at the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center in 29 Palms in southern San Bernardino County, California. Erin didn't seem interested in college and only spoke of her fervent desire to join John in California after graduation. John had already approached the Hevelands about asking Erin to marry him while he was home on leave, but though they had tentatively given their approval, they asked him to consider waiting something like a two-year period before making such a serious commitment. The kids were young after all and had all the time in the world. Well, John respectfully declined their advice and proposed to Erin shortly after her high school graduation. I know, guys. I know that people fall in love and it's crazy. And I've mentioned it one million times that I married Nathaniel after five months, but we were 29 years old. If you are madly in love when you're 18, you know, give it a couple years, go to college, go to boot camp, go to, you know, go to wherever, get a job for four years and live together. The marriage is a lot when you're still a teenager. Yeah, I know. Especially if you've like, but if you like never left any, whether it's college or travel or anything, it's like, what else are you going to do? Yeah. And I think that Aaron and John were very serious people. They were just very committed. They knew what they wanted right from the beginning. He wanted to be a Marine. She wanted to be kind of like a stay-at-home wife who had a lot of animals and eventually had kids, you know? Yeah. So they thought that they knew the direction that they wanted to go in. At a family picnic, he placed a small diamond solitaire on the straw of a can of Sprite, Aaron's favorite drink. As fireworks went off behind them, Aaron tearfully and joyfully accepted the proposal. Well, yeah, if you get engaged when you're 18 years old, (laughs) then you're not drinking champagne. No. 
<laughs> You're drinking Sprite. <laughs> oh, God. Yep. That November 10th, while the couple was in Las Vegas for the military's annual anniversary ball, the two eloped at the world-famous Chapel of the Bells. That's a different right one on- than we did. That's a different one. You guys did the Church of the West? Little Chapel in the West, yeah. Little Chapel in the West. I always forget for some reason. Yours was so cute. Yeah, it was really cute. It wasn't near any of the other ones either. That's how you kind of know. They like moved it by Mandalay Bay. Yeah, because yours felt like it was like kind of in the desert. Had a pretty vista. It was in front of the airport. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> Lovely McCarran. <laughs> so romantic this time of year. <laughs> Right after the wedding, John had to deploy to Japan. So Aaron lived in a condo back home in Tennessee where she cared. It's like, you know, like he gets to go travel and she's just like. She's just stuck back at home. Well, they weren't married yet. So, and I think I remember this from a previous story that it's not always guaranteed that the wife goes on deployments anyway, you know. So, yeah, I it, if based on what I read and what people said about her, she seemed extremely content with her life. Okay. But, yeah, I think it would be well, hard to be that young and, you know, be in your hometown while your husband was in Japan, you know? Yeah, I mean, I want to, like, strangle that guy for being in Japan right now. I want to go to Japan so bad. <laughs> also, this is a very Andy story. They, like, live in the desert that you're going to live in, basically, and <laughs> – and they get to go to Japan, which is like your favorite place to travel. <laughs> this is a very Andy New Year over here. <laughs> so on September 25th, 2013, Erin finally got on a plane to 29 Palms to begin her real life as a Marine's wife. She and her whole family were excited for her life with John to truly begin. Lore, though concerned that her daughter was so young, found some solace in knowing that the couple would be on a military base Mm -hmm. surrounded by other upstanding Marines. She said, because her husband was out in the field so often, we felt like base housing would be the safest for her. We figured she'd be protected. Tragically, this is exactly where Erin would come across her eventual killer. So they're at the, the Marine base in 29 Palms. Yep. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. huge. Like, huge. And the crazy thing is, like, they always have all those planes flying in the sky that you can't see. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so creepy. So can you hear them but not see them? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it's like a massive base. It's huge. It's, you can, you kind of go over the hill and then you can see, like, the whole base. It's, it's ginormous. Wild. I can't wait to come out. Yeah. I mean, maybe not to see the military base, but Uh -uh. (laughs) to see you and where your future home will be. Shortly after moving in, John and Aaron met their new neighbors in the military base apartment complex, Connor and Ashling Malaki, who were expecting their first child, as well as Chris and Nicole Lee, who had a six-year-old daughter named Liberty and were originally from Anchorage, Alaska. The three couples became fast friends, throwing weekly cookouts or having movie nights, and the men often went to Joshua Tree National Park to shoot guns and race off-road vehicles, while the women would be in and out of each other's apartments all day. Yeah, this was like, it was basically their college because they didn't have college, you know? Yeah. At 24, Chris Lee was the oldest in the group and had already served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Chris and Nicole were high school sweethearts, much like the Corwins. Nicole had only been 17 and Chris 18 when they discovered she was pregnant with Liberty. 
They decided to have the child and stay together. After little Liberty was born in 2008, Chris joined the Marines and the couple eventually married in the summer of 2009. After the wedding, the young family moved to 29 Palms. They met the Malakis in 2012 when they moved into the apartment complex. And though Connor and Chris became best friends, Ashling was less fond of the Lees. It's um, Ashling like A-I-S-L-I-N-G. Oh. Yeah. It's like, uh, is that like a Celtic pronunciation? Yeah, I'm not sure. Or Gaelic. Yeah, Ashling. It's a pretty cool name. Their apartment was constantly dirty. Liberty often left alone or foisted upon Ashling to babysit at the very last minute. And Nicole could be aggressive, rude, and in your face. However, Ashling tolerated Nicole due to her husband's close friendship with Chris. The Lee's marriage struggled in late 2012 with Chris deployed in Afghanistan and Nicole suffering a miscarriage while he was away. Oh, no. That's the absolute worst time, too, with your husband so far away and alone with your yeah. child. And, and at, in combat. Yeah, super scary. Ugh. Chris returned in April of 2013, but he was depressed and having a hard time reintegrating into family life. Nicole and Chris volunteered on a horse rescue ranch owned by Isabel Megley and sponsored two rescue horses. This seemed to momentarily lift Chris out of his depression and help bring the couple close once more. By the time the Corwins moved in, Chris and Nicole were healing and moving toward a healthy future. Nicole and Aaron immediately bonded over their shared love of horses and Aaron began volunteering at the ranch as well. Everything looked bright for all of the young couples, and especially for shy Aaron, who was delighted to have made such fast friends in the apartment complex and found an outlet where she was able to indulge in her passion for horses. Unfortunately, by the time January 2014 rolled around, John and Aaron were having significant money issues. John made roughly $1,790 a month, and the couple wasn't great at budgeting to make ends meet. I also think that they had been in high school, like the last time they were together all the time. Yeah. Clearly not living together. And then they had been long distance for years yeah. while he was like at boot camp, and then he was on base, and then he was in Japan. I don't think that they knew how to like do marriage and live together day in, day out, you know? Yeah. Does the Marine base pay for their apartment? Like is the apartment owned yes. by the so, Okay. So the accommodations and their utility bills, I think were covered by the military. Wow. That's so 1700 bucks. That's a lot to do with in the desert. Like that's a fair yeah. amount of money per month. I think they talked about how John like bought in like off road vehicle, like a terrain vehicle to go, you know, off-roading with and you know they had like big screen TVs and they played video games and stuff so I think it was more the case of that they were super young they were 19 and 20 yeah and spending on frivolous things spending on frivolous things and you know $1,700 is fairly decent when your you know rent is covered yeah but I think it can still go fast I mean it depends what you're spending on groceries if you're not watching that you know yeah during this time, Erin relied heavily on her best friend, Jesse, and the two would spend hours on the phone or FaceTime. Erin's unhappiness was briefly broken when she discovered she was pregnant in late January. Both she and John were delighted to welcome a child and promised to commit to a budget and put their money woes behind them. 
Unfortunately, the baby was not meant to be, and Erin suffered a devastating miscarriage only a few weeks into her pregnancy. Jesse. No, this is really sad. In February of 2014, Chris seemed to recognize a fellow depressed soul in Aaron, and the two became close talking about his struggles with mental health after returning from Afghanistan and her grief at losing the pregnancy. The three couples routinely got together on Sunday nights to watch the hit AMC show, The Walking Dead. On one of these nights, Chris claimed he was a couple shows behind... So he didn't want to see the most recent episode. So he begged off to join Aaron in the bedroom and play Xbox. Aaron hated the gratuitous violence and never watched with the rest of the gang. So this wasn't terribly unusual. What was unusual was that Chris leaned over and kissed Aaron mere feet away from their spouses in the next room. Ew! So Crazy and risky and gross. How did Erin respond? She responded into it. She was a willing participant. An affair was sparked and the two began sneaking around and seeing each other whenever they could get away. I mean, this is another reason not to get married when you're 18 years old, you know? Often they got together with Chris arriving at Aaron's apartment at six in the morning while John attended personal training and Nicole slept in. Chris and Aaron texted constantly and within a few short weeks of beginning the affair, they were already saying, I love you. Oh my God. Oh Uh. no. Aaron admitted the affair to Jesse, who was hesitant to encourage the infidelity, but relieved to hear that her best friend was her old happy self. It was as though all of the anguish of the past couple months had completely evaporated. Aaron was 100% infatuated with her new married boyfriend. Ew. This is the wrong... I mean, this is a classic attempt at solving the problem with the wrong solution. You know, the excitement of a new love affair will flood your body with different types of endorphins. Especially when you're that young. When you're that young. And I mean, she had never been with anyone but John. She got together with him when she was 16 and she was like a very, you know, good girl, very moral, you know? So this is technically like her second boyfriend ever, really. Oh God, this is nauseating. Unfortunately, their secret affair wouldn't stay secret for very long. In mid-February, Ashling Malaki caught them kissing in her living room after the rest of the group had gone to bed. Chris left immediately after they were spotted, and Aaron pretended to have been asleep on the couch. Later, Ashling confronted Chris about it, who eventually admitted to the kiss, but claimed that the affair hadn't gone any further. Ashling also spoke to Aaron, who swore that their flirtation had been brief and unimportant. Aaron and Chris promised to end their relationship. Ashling was uncomfortable, but agreed to not discuss what she had seen with Nicole or Uh... John. So she's very much stuck in the middle, but I kind of respect the fact that she was like, if you guys stop it, if you stop like behaving like this, if you're going to end the affair, then I'm not going to say anything because it's not my business, but like, you need to stop it now. Yeah, she handled it super right. That was very mature, I think, on her part. Yeah. The affair apparently continued, however, until Nicole discovered texts on Chris's phone that revealed everything. 
so he got caught in our watch. In April, the friend group splintered permanently when Nicole confronted Aaron at a get-together and John Corwin got the first whiff of his teenage wife's infidelity. No. Yeah. So Aaron and Chris, at, at this point, actually cut off ties for good as they both had, you know, their spouses looking over their shoulders at this point, and both couples planned to repair after the betrayal. So both sets of people wanted to stay together. They were also, I think, kind of relieved that they had nipped this affair in the bud. Both Aaron and Chris said they had never actually slept together. It was just a, like a making a- out flirtation thing. It's a bummer that Nicole and John didn't get on because they could have just done like a little wife swap. A little a little swappy swap. From what I read, nobody likes Nicole. <laughs> um, she sounds like a very disagreeable sort. So I don't know if John was ready to trade his, his sweet wife in for her. But uh, yeah, you'll see. She doesn't sound like a peach, this Nicole. Um, so Chris's contract with the Marines was up in July. And so this all came to light in April. His contract is up in July and the Lees began to make plans to officially leave the Marines and head back to Alaska, which seems like a good move for their marriage. Okay. Uh, Aaron's depression returned without the excitement of the affair. And also the Lees had like won the horse ranch in the breakup because they had been there first, you know? So she didn't really have that outlet anymore. She wasn't getting I to mean, see the horses. Yeah. You don't I mean, get to see that's the what happens. with the girl if you make out with her boyfriend. <laughs> with her husband, husband and the father of her child. Yeah. 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 No bueno. You don't get to go play no. horsey horsey no anymore. <laughs> no. John was willing to do anything to make Aaron happy and heal their relationship. So they also began to consider moving back to Tennessee after his contract was up the following year in 2015. Still, the Corwins fought about finances with John taking away Aaron's credit cards at some point. She was beginning to feel extremely trapped in the marriage and in 29 Palms. So uh, I guess like Ashling Malaki stayed friends with her, but obviously it's very tense where she lives. She tried to find work at another tractor supply store that was in the area, but it was 45 minute commute each way. And she, I guess she had some sort of anxiety about driving. So like having to drive 90 minutes a day when you have anxiety about driving is super stressful. And it was actually stressing her out more than giving her any sort of like freedom, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have to drive everywhere out in the desert. Like it's not like you can't walk anywhere. Exactly. So, so she was really, really miserable and she confided in Jesse that she believed the marriage was headed for divorce. Yeah. Despite all of the marital turmoil, the Corwins discovered that Aaron was expecting a baby again on June 22nd. Oh my God. Crazy. Severe nausea had driven Aaron to the ER. John had taken her and a test confirmed the pregnancy. John was somewhat surprised. They hadn't been planning the pregnancy and the two had only been intimate sporadically as, you know, the affair had recently been revealed. Is it definitely his? Well, John thought it was because remember, Chris and Aaron both said that they never slept together. So John believed it was absolutely his. 
John also thought that the baby would be a chance to repair their faltering marriage and even excitedly called his father back in Tennessee to tell him he was going to be a grandpa. Aaron only shared the happy news with Jesse. Her mother, Lore, was planning a visit out to California in a couple weeks, and she planned to tell her in person then. On Saturday, June 28th, Aaron woke up early in the morning and chatted with Jesse while she got ready for the day. She told John she was heading out solo to scout some good scenic vistas in Joshua Tree National Park to take her mother when she came out for a visit. Cute. Cute. It was John's day off, so he slept in and eventually rose to play video and computer games for most of the day. Hours passed and he didn't hear from Aaron. He initially wasn't concerned as cell reception in the desert was spotty at best. But as the day turned to night, he became increasingly frantic. Uh, Yeah. It's super scary. Starting at 4 p.m., he repeatedly dialed Aaron's number and left her dozens of messages, but she never returned his calls. John tried to tell himself maybe she was at a friend's house, but he didn't know who or where that could be. At first light on Sunday morning, he called the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office and reported his pregnant wife missing. Due to her condition and worries about Aaron potentially being lost and dehydrated in the Mojave or Joshua Tree or wherever she was, an investigation was launched immediately. John also informed the Hevelins and his own family about Aaron's disappearance, and Laura and John's mother, Sheila, got on a plane to California. Suspicion was cast on John pretty much right away. A, because it's always the husband, obviously. But also, B, this is something I didn't know until I read this book, and it is terrifying. Apparently, homicide is the leading cause of death in pregnant women. What? Isn't that wild? Over 20% of deaths in pregnant women are caused by murder, more than any one single health issue. Oh my God. That is terrifying. The leading cause of death of pregnant women is homicide. That is crazy. Yeah, I Googled it. It's true. Isn't that insane? If Google says. Well, if Google says it, then it has to be true. And Wikipedia. (laughs) There's definitely no one falsifying things on Wikipedia at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, and I I trust Shanna. I think she did her research. Wow, that is wild. Isn't that crazy? And of course, you know, you hear these horror stories about women attacking, yeah, attacking pregnant women to like cut out their babies and steal the fetus. Oh God, I know I haven't heard of that. You haven't heard of this? Oh my God, there's so many cases, Andy. I could send you like five right now where women do crazy stuff, like where they want a baby or they feel really, really desperate to have a child. And then they like post something like free baby clothes on Craigslist or something. And when the pregnant woman comes to get them, they attack and try to cut the baby out and then take it to the hospital like it was theirs. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I just, I thought I'd terrify you this I know about, I know about the like, women who dress up like nurses and go steal babies at the hospital. Yeah, but that doesn't really happen anymore. Okay, so, but people cut fetuses out of live women? Because it's way harder to steal babies from hospitals now, so they're desperate. 
Yeah, there's there's some like I survived episodes about this too of women who like Shit. actually survived, although oh. most of the women don't. But that is actually way, way, way less than what usually happens, which is nine times out of 10, if not more, it's the domestic partner or the baby daddy. Just not wanting the baby? Just not wanting the baby, not being ready for the responsibility. Maybe they are an affair partner and they don't want, you know, the the product of their affair to be revealed, you know? Whoa. So rough. I mean, think about it. You know some. You just said, like, Lacey Peterson. There's a million more cases like that. Yeah. He, I mean, that he was just a psycho. I can't believe that, like, are they, like, debating that he, like, didn't do it now? Yeah, they're going to give him a new trial. So crazy. So crazy. And someone, who was it that said they were going to represent him? It was um, the woman who killed her kid in Florida. What? Yeah. The person who was going to represent Scott Peterson, she became, like, a rightful... um... What, like, Casey Anthony? Yep. Are you kidding me? That's a fucking train wreck couple right there. Jesus. Yeah. 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 So based on that, of course, the investigators had to look at John first. It would take a long time to clear John of all the suspicion. And even after the police formally cleared him, rumors and innuendo still swirled about his potential involvement, especially when it came to light that Aaron had been having an affair because People thought it was a natural motive that the jealous husband would kill his wife, especially if he suspected that the baby wasn't his, you know? Yeah. However, internet and computer logs proved that he was actually playing video games all day. His cell phone only pinged off the tower closest to their apartment and showed that he had never left. And he also passed a polygraph with flying colors. So he was absolutely not involved. So naturally, the next person the police suspected was a fair partner, Chris Lee. But how could you like sleep that night? He didn't really sleep. I think I don't know. I think he was just nervous to report her in case she came back. I think that they'd been fighting. They'd been having problems. And he was like, maybe she's like out with somebody else. He had found out about Chris and was surprised about that. So maybe he's like, maybe she's having another affair. Like, I don't know. I think that it's you don't want to believe that it's time to call the police. It didn't It didn't mean he had ne- like necessarily slept that night, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, Chris had been alone in the desert all day on Saturday and had no alibi. Chris claimed he had left to go coyote and snake hunting in Joshua Tree at 7 a.m. on Saturday. Uh-huh. Which is patently ridiculous because coyotes are nocturnal animals and it would take him a couple hours to get to where he was hunting. So why would a coyote be out in the middle of the day in the heat at the end of June in Joshua Tree? No. Absolutely not. And Chris had invited Connor Malaki to come with him, but Connor declined because he had some friends still crashing on his couch who were hungover from the night before. Connor saw Chris put a tarp, his gun, and a white propane tank into his Jeep. Super sus. That's like literally Scott Peterson. Yep. Chris explained that he was going to use the propane tank to blow up a mine shaft. 
At 8.15, Connor texted Chris that he was able to meet him in the desert, and Chris texted back instructions on where to meet as well as instructing him to tell Nicole his phone would be on airplane mode, and then Chris switched his phone off for the day. So Sounds these shady. are It's super shady. These are details um, that Shanna Hogan wrote about in Secrets of a Marine's Wife. About 3.30 p.m., Chris emerged from the park alone. So we have no idea where he was from 8.15 to 3.30 p.m. Okay. Switching on his phone, Chris noticed he had missed calls from both Connor and his wife. First, he called Connor. By then, Connor was irritated. After receiving his friend's text, Connor drove toward the entrance of the park but couldn't find Chris or his Jeep. Connor tried calling, but Chris's cell phone went straight to voicemail. He sent a text, but Chris didn't respond. After nearly three hours of searching, Connor gave up and returned home. When Chris finally called hours later, Connor confronted him. What happened? Where have you been? Chris said that Connor must have gotten confused about where they planned to meet. I was looking for a good place to find coyotes, Chris told him, and then I got kind of lost and had no reception. Chris also told a bizarre story about encountering a stranger in the park who shot a gun in his direction. You should have come with me, dude, Chris exclaimed. Someone shot at me. After hanging up with Connor, Chris called his wife. Where are you? Nicole was frantic and gasping for air. When she couldn't reach Chris, she had panicked, triggering an asthma attack. She was really upset, Chris recalled, because I had no service and she couldn't get a hold of me. By 4 p.m., Chris returned to the apartment. Later, Connor noticed the propane tank was no longer in the back of Chris's Jeep. He asked his friend if he had blown the tank like he discussed. It didn't go off, Chris replied. Hmm. Chris outlined his whereabouts on the day of Aaron's disappearance and denied having any contact with her for months, not since the confrontation and blow up between the couples. He denied any knowledge of Aaron's pregnancy, and when the investigators suggested it was possible that he could be the father of Aaron's baby, he categorically denied ever having had sex with Aaron. Chris claimed the affair had stopped at making out and sneaking around. Well, the police were about to find out just how full of shit Chris was when Jesse Trentum found out that Aaron was missing, but Chris had returned from the desert alone, and she decided it was time to stop keeping Aaron's secrets and told both Lore and the authorities that the affair had actually never ended. Stop. No. Unfortunately <laughs> for Aaron. No, I will not stop, Andy. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for Aaron, she had kept seeing Chris. Ugh. Though the two had kept apart for a couple weeks following the blow up, Chris had begun writing Aaron poetry and reeled oh. her back in. My God. Yeah. I mean, she's 19. What 19-year-old girl can resist the pull of bad poetry written by a 24-year-old boy? Who wants to blow up mine shafts. Yep. And and hunt coyotes and snakes. Uh, One poem was later found in a secret compartment of Aaron's jewelry box that read, Like it or not, you still hold a part of my heart. Ready or not, we were going to get caught. Don't give up, and I won't too. Hopefully, like me, you still think I love you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Don't give up your day job and go to Hallmark there, buddy. (laughs) 
Although he could write a special series. What do I tell my affair partner after we've been caught in the act by our spouses? A special new line at Hallmark. Cheaters. Cheaters collection. Cheaters section. (laughs) This time around, they both used a phone app that altered the number they called from and were more discreet about how and when they messaged each other. In early May, they had sex. On calls with Jesse, Aaron made it clear that she was in love with Chris and was planning to move to Alaska to be with him. Wow. Oh, God. When she told Jesse about the pregnancy, she said that she was 99.99% sure that the baby was Chris's. Aaron said that Chris had responded surprisingly well to the pregnancy news and that the two had even begun discussing baby names. Aaron Aaron reported to Jesse that Chris was taking her somewhere special to celebrate the pregnancy. According to Jesse's account in Shanna Hogan's book, Since learning she was expecting, Aaron hadn't had much time alone to talk to Chris. He promised they could spend the whole day together and talk. Despite her prodding, Chris would only reveal it was a -a one-of-a-kind place. They planned the getaway for a full week before setting the date for Saturday, June 28th. As the week passed, Aaron fantasized about the added significance of the secret trip. Was Chris planning to tell her he was leaving Nicole? Did Chris want to ask her to divorce John and marry him? Late on the night of June 25th, just three days before the excursion, Aaron contacted Jesse. So apparently this surprise trip is super important, and I finally got him to tell me it's by the National Park, Aaron texted Jesse at 10.43 p.m. It apparently takes two hours just to get there. A long, slow drive. Good talking time, though. They agreed to meet that morning. Mm Mm-hmm. Ugh. Chris is so disgusting. So premeditated. They agreed to meet that morning in a desert swath a few miles from the back Condor Gate. From there, Aaron would ride with Chris and his Jeep to their mysterious destination. Getting the whole day together, Aaron told Jesse. It's a first for us. The location is only half the surprise. And he said he's honestly not sure how I'm going to react. As for the special surprise, Chris would not give her any hints. I'm clueless, lol. I'm ready to know what it is. I mean, I have a couple ideas in mind, but I'm not going to say shit until I actually know, she wrote. Well, I don't blame you, Jesse responded. I seriously don't know why he would drag me out to a very special place for a dumb surprise, Aaron wrote. I feel like it's big, but dot, dot, dot. Jesse replied with a string of emojis, including a diamond ring, hearts, and question marks. Guys, you're <laughs> married already. It's not like you're, like, single and, like, this is your boyfriend. You're both married. And so young. She's 19. Jesus. Uh, Suggesting a possible engagement. Maybe he was mysteriously playing with my ring the other night, Aaron texted back. We shall see. This day cannot come quick enough. Ugh. Ugh, I'm sick to my stomach for this poor girl. And also, what a twisted fuck for him to be like, I don't know, you might like the surprise when he's planning on killing her. Yeah, that's sick. It's like he's toying with her, you know? This poor baby girl. 
Armed with this new information, as well as the fact that Erin hadn't used her cell phone, social media, or debit card since her disappearance, the police were fairly certain that Erin would not be found alive, and also fairly certain that Chris had something nefarious to do with where Erin had gone. Eventually, they also found Erin's abandoned Corolla on a roadside. Jeep tracks that appeared to match Chris's vehicle were apparent pulling up to Erin's car. And footprint evidence seemed to suggest Aaron had willingly left her car and entered the Jeep. Faced with the new evidence, Chris just doubled down and continued to deny, deny, deny. He claimed that Aaron was a pathological liar and nothing that she told Jesse could be trusted. Wow. He's such a scumbag. Another Marine had recently come forward, admitting that Chris had been asking him about the best place and method to dispose of a body. (laughs) This guy is such an idiot. When asked about this, Chris claimed that this was just something Marines talk about together. You know, like dead baby jokes. You guys make a lot of dead baby jokes over there? Yeah, that's what the police were like. They were like, uh, excusez-moi? Without prompting, Chris broke into telling a few tasteless dead baby jokes in a row. Much like just started, he told like three or four in a row. Much the investigator's horror. One of the ones he said was, what's the difference between a Corvette and a pile of dead babies? I don't have a Corvette in my garage. It's just Uh, gross and unfunny and... The investigators were like, who the fuck do you think you are, you disgusting POS? Ugh. Meanwhile, Chris's wife's Nicole's behavior was sketchy as hell, too. Ashling and Connor Malaki were growing increasingly concerned that Chris had had something to do with Aaron's disappearance. When Ashling asked Nicole about Aaron, Nicole had snapped with vitriol. I don't care what happened to that little bitch. Like... Dude, I know she had an affair with your husband, but that's not how you respond when somebody is missing and presumed dead. Yeah. Ashling was astounded. Isabella Megley, the owner of the horse rescue, was also becoming increasingly alarmed at the Lee's behavior. On July 2nd, Nicole complained to her that Chris couldn't keep his alibi story straight with the police. She said, quote, he's so dumb he can't keep his lies straight. Nicole bragged that the detectives learned nothing from her because she knew how to keep her story straight and when to shut her mouth. She convinced Isabel that there was no way Chris would face murder charges despite the evidence against him. Without a body, detectives don't have a case, Nicole said. Oh my God. Yeah, she said this. And there was no way they were ever going to find Aaron, Nicole confided in Isabel. So she knows about it too. She 100% knows about it. The investigators and the prosecutors tried to figure out if they could charge her as like accessory to the crime. Uh, Ultimately, there wasn't enough evidence, but there was a a for sure lingering suspicion that she was involved. Though it, it doesn't appear that she was involved in the actual murder, obviously. It seems that she had foreknowledge of the event before it happened and she definitely knew about it after, you know? Yep, yep, yep. I mean, I personally think that this is like a lot of the stories that we hear about where she found out about the affair and I think she wanted him to kill her. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if Nicole was the driving force behind this, which was like the only way to make this better. 
is for you to kill her. Kind of like our second story with the Texas cadets. Yeah, so I think she knew all about this. Equally alarming was when Isabel discovered that Chris and Nicole had hid Chris's hunting rifle at her house without her knowledge. The Lees were scheduled to leave for Anchorage on July 7th, but had to be out of their apartment no later than July 4th. Prior to Aaron's disappearance, Isabel had agreed they could stay at the ranch for a few nights in between, but she was becoming anxious having the pair under her roof. It was soon revealed that only days before Aaron's disappearance, Chris and a friend had gone out to Joshua Tree and explored and photographed a number of abandoned mine shafts. The police had received the photos and consulted with expert caver John Norman. Together with hundreds of civilian caver volunteers, law enforcement officials, and cadaver dogs were searching over 2,000 square miles in an unbelievable effort to find Aaron and bring her home. I mean, you know that desert. Can you think of how crazy it is to try to search for one human? No, it's impossible. It's a needle in a haystack, truly. Mm -hmm. In an effort to slow the Lees' plan to flee to Alaska, the police searched their belongings and found a potato launcher, which is apparently illegal to own in California. Chris was charged with possession of a destructive device and put in jail. However, Nicole managed to secure the $25,000 bail from Chris's parents, and on July 8th, the family left for their long drive back to Alaska. You can drive to Alaska? Apparently, you you go through Canada. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long-ass drive, though, from from Joshua Tree to Anchorage. That is so far. That's so, so far. I want to see how far that is. Well, I guess they took their horses with them in a horse trailer. So that's why they had to drive. Anchorage. That's crazy. <laughs> you go all the way through British Columbia and Alberta and the whatever YT is into wow. Alaska. Yukon Territory, yeah. Yeah. Damn. That's crazy. Yeah, so they had a, a long and winding road trip. I'm sure they had plenty of colorful conversations about the murder he committed oh my god mm-hmm. and with their kid too right and with liberty yep and the horses in a trailer in the back yikes in late july when the lees arrived in anchorage chris's parents secured chico-based defense attorney david kalanides to represent chris in the potato gun charge and any issues that would arise in connection to aaron's disappearance At the time, David assured the Lee family that it was extremely unlikely that their son would ever have to see the inside of a courtroom in the matter. Back in California, the tireless volunteers kept up their devotion over weeks and weeks of the fruitless, dusty, and stiflingly hot search. Shanna Hogan later interviewed the detectives and volunteers. Dozens of deputies and homicide detectives worked alongside the searchers, Checking off each mine on the list, the homicide team was joined by dozens of officers and law enforcement officials from different departments and bureaus across California. We were digging holes. We were searching. I was wearing a t-shirt and jeans going into mine shafts, remember Detective Hank? We wanted to find her, so we were doing anything we could to help. Police Chief Dale Mondery of the Joshua Tree Station spent weeks working 10 to 12-hour days in the desert. He arrived early each morning, but never seemed to beat the sheriff's homicide team. One morning, Mondery raced to work, determined to be there first. Instead, he saw the detectives clambering out of their vehicles, dressed and ready to resume searching at sunrise. 
Mondry realized the homicide detectives were sleeping in their cars. Oh my God. So committed. They were just incredible, he commented. And I was just lucky enough to be associated and be a part of that. After weeks of searching the rugged terrain of the park, the rescue teams paused to reevaluate their search plan. By then, more than 2,000 square miles of desert had been explored. The search was complicated by the fact that there were so many mines, some unmarked, spread across the park. Some pits were so vast a car could fall into them. Jesus. This is so crazy. Despite it's like a cold case. Did you ever listen to that podcast? Yes. Cold. And they still haven't found her. No. Despite the lack of clues, investigators were determined to use every resource available to find Aaron. Ceasing the search would mean Aaron's remains might never be uncovered and her killer would never be brought to justice. Everyone was definitely very aware that if a body wasn't found, there may never be enough evidence to make an arrest, remembered searcher John Norman. And whoever killed this girl would never be punished. So fucked. Unbelievable. It's just, it's so crazy. It must be so infuriating to be a police officer and know with your gut and with the evidence who did it and not be able to prove it. Yeah. And like, think about her loved ones too. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's kind of fucked that you can't like prosecute without a body because there's so many, there's so many ways to dispose of a body. It's just really hard. That's all. After eight weeks, the detectives had grown exhausted and pessimistic. It was decided that Saturday on August 16th would be the last day of the search. Fortuitously, that was the same day that Italian caver Luca Cherubini, same day, the last day of the search, discovered the shaft with the nauseating odor of gasoline and decomposition. Using the bucket cam, intrepid caving veterans lowered themselves into the deep and deadly cavern and Aaron's corpse was finally, sadly recovered. Wait, so why did, how did they not dispose of it? So, uh, basically, are you talking about Chris? Mm-hmm. So after he killed her, he apparently threw her down the shaft. And I think he was trying to use the propane tank to basically, like, throw it in after her and make it explode so that the rubble would cover her corpse. But the he set he didn't set the propane take off right. There was a problem with um basically how he rigged it to go off with um I forget what it's called, but like like he attached like some sort of like handkerchief with gasoline or something like to like set like it up. Like a Molotov cocktail. Yeah, exactly. And it didn't go off the way he had rigged it. And so all of the stuff was found in the mind with her. So Aaron had fallen the equivalent of 14 stories straight down. Luckily, she landed on a jutting ledge and she was already deceased when he threw her down. Okay, good. Yep. And if they, if she hadn't, you know, her corpse hadn't landed on that ledge, it might have been impossible for the crews to even detect her because the bottom of that particular shaft was over 250 feet deep. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Next to her in the makeshift grave was the propane tank. Chris had been putting in his Jeep, water jugs, climbing rope, and most tragically, an empty Sprite bottle. The same type of drink that John Corwin had used to propose only a couple years earlier. Yeah. So he basically threw all the evidence in the hole and tried to set it on fire and it didn't work. Good job, dude. He's an idiot. 
Aaron's body was so badly decomposed and battered from the journey down the cave that she needed to be identified through dental records. She was still wearing the pink t-shirt and jean shorts that she'd been seen in on the day that she disappeared. It was clear that she had been dead from the day she went missing, a detail the coroner confirmed after the autopsy. The cause of death was determined to be strangulation as a homemade garrote was still looped around her neck and partially entangled in her hair. Oh my God. Yeah. If any of you guys don't know what a garrote is, it's, it's basically like a wire or something used to choke people with handles on the ends. It looks like an evil jump rope, essentially. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Psychopath. Due to the body being dumped down the mine, she had extensive postmortem fractures, but also appeared to have been hit with something very hard in the head while alive or extremely soon after brain death. Unfortunately, due to the heat and the length of the time that Erin had spent in the mine, her uterus was completely decomposed. Yeah. It, It was impossible to confirm her pregnancy and especially impossible to find any DNA evidence that would prove conclusively who the father of the baby had been. I mean, don't we know, though? Come on. I think we all know, yes. And he fucking killed her. Like, yeah, exactly. Chris, we also know, like, the pregnancy was confirmed in the emergency room. Yeah. The, you know, so medical professionals had it on file that she was absolutely pregnant at the time of her death, you know? Yeah, yeah. Chris was arrested in Anchorage and eventually extradited back to California to face trial for Aaron's murder. In the suburban, Chris had been borrowing from his mother... Alaskan investigators found knives and most shockingly, a homemade garrote that was identical to the one wrapped around Aaron's neck. Oh my God. So how many garrots do you need, dude? (laughs) This guy, this guy needs to just go to jail now. Absolutely. 100% and never see the light of day. In 2015, DNA evidence on the T-shirt and the Sprite bottle were matched to Chris. His fingerprints were also found on the love poem found in Aaron's jewelry box, proving that he had lied repeatedly about his relationship with her. The trial finally began on October 11th of 2016. The prosecution alleged the motive for murder was to conceal the affair and resulting pregnancy. They had plenty of forensic evidence to back up their claim, as well as Jesse's testimony outlining the affair and the fact that Chris had no alibi for the day of the murder and was, in fact, even admittedly in the same location that Aaron had disappeared from and later been found gruesomely killed and dumped like trash. Oh, my God. This is a very open and closed case here. Though David Kalonides, Chris's defense attorney, attempted to block Jesse's testimony as hearsay, it was what? allowed in. Yeah, basically they were trying to say that, like, Aaron couldn't be trusted to tell Jesse the truth, so it's it shouldn't be allowed in as truth, you know? Yeah, so, like, the dead person it doesn't get any say. A say at all. Yeah. His request was denied, of course. His request that Chris be allowed to wear his Marine uniform to garter sympathy was also denied. Stop it. Yeah. Also, you're not even in the Marines anymore, buddy. I don't know that that would give me sympathy points. No. I think they were trying to paint him as some sort of upstanding gentleman and, like, make Aaron look bad. Like yeah, he's upsetting good gentlemen, dead baby jokes. Ugh, oh, it makes my skin crawl. Ugh. 
The defense had been extremely tight-lipped about their strategy going into the trial, so it wasn't until the prosecution rested and Kalanides called his first and only witness, Chris Lee himself, that the court got any inkling what his story and bid for freedom would be. And his story was shocking and a slap in the face to Aaron's memory and legacy. Though Chris finally owned up to the sexual affair with Aaron and its ongoing nature, he denied it was his intent to kill her on their date to the desert. The purpose of the outing was to discuss their relationship and perhaps gain some closure as he was planning to cut ties with her when his family departed to Alaska. Aaron allegedly became frustrated and angry, saying that she wanted to come to Alaska, that she specifically wanted to be a part of Liberty's life. After Aaron repeatedly mentioned her love for Liberty, Chris's memory was triggered to an event months earlier. Oh my Uh god. You see where this one is going. Yes. In which Nicole had found their daughter's crotch red and irritated while bathing her. This is sick. This is sick that this is what he tried to say. Nicole, who at the time was unaware of the affair, had been allowing Aaron to babysit and wondered if she had touched the child inappropriately. When he recalled this, he confronted Aaron in the desert and, according to Chris, Aaron admitted to having been molesting Liberty. What a fucking piece of shit. I mean, you can imagine how this felt to all of her loved ones, to her mother who's sitting there watching the guy who killed your daughter then try to paint her when she is dead as because a of them as a child molester. It's horrifying. It's like killing her all over again. Wow, this is sick. He is a sick fuck. He testified that at the moment, all of the love he had had for Aaron turned to pure hatred. Then he picked up the garrote in a cloud of rage and strangled her to death in the heat of the moment. Also, like, poor Liberty. Like, yeah. Well, this comes up later. We'll talk about that because the prosecutor decided not to interview Liberty because he didn't want to put her through it. No. Um, it's, It's insane. It's an insane thing to do to your child. But let's go back for a second and talk about how he just had the garrote with him. Why would you have a garrote with you if you weren't going to kill anyone? There's literally no other use for a garrote other than murdering. Like, he's like, oh, it was just in my back pocket. In the heat of a moment, I had a garrote. And then the the prosecutor eventually had him show how he killed her. And it takes at least like five minutes to truly strangle somebody to death with a garage. Like this was not a, a reaction, a heat of the moment type of thing. No, you like blacked out and like woke up and you had accidentally killed someone. Like, no, no, this is, this was just a ploy. Chris Lee's new story portrayed the slang as a crime of passion by an outraged father protecting his daughter. Though he admitted to killing her, Chris contended he had snapped because Aaron supposedly confessed to molesting his daughter. This was a perfect ploy for him because it accounted for all of the physical evidence. Because he knew he was caught, having been there, having killed her, all of his DNA was everywhere. So he was trying to come up with a sympathetic story for himself. Chris's testimony was an attempt to reduce the charges against him. 
if a jury believed killing Aaron wasn't premeditated or planned, or even if they believed his story, you know, obviously child molestation is a huge trigger for so many people. They could instead convict him of second degree murder or even involuntary manslaughter. A first degree murder conviction carried an automatic life sentence. A manslaughter verdict, however, could allow Chris to walk free in as little as three years. Oh my God. No, please, God. Chris was forced to admit in cross-examination that neither he nor Nicole ever called the police or even consulted Liberty's pediatrician. In fact, the family continued to use Aaron as a regular babysitter, and Chris continued his affair with the alleged molester of his own child. So you're going to really keep sleeping with somebody that you think is molesting your kid. I mean, that's just, the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah, the claim was outlandish at best and unbelievably cruel, inflammatory, and damaging to Aaron's loved ones who strongly disputed the possibility of Chris's story. I knew his attorney would not be able to dig up any dirt on Aaron. In the beginning, I said if there was going to be any dirt, it would have to be made up, Laura remarked. The allegations that Chris claimed were lower than I imagined possible. <sighs> No one who knew Aaron believed one word, but it was still offensive, painful, and ridiculous, John Corwin explained. Yes. Of course. It's, it's, it's like literally pissing all over her grave. Oh, God. She was nurturing, caring, never did anything elusive or crude or harmful, John recalled. No one who ever knew Aaron or has ever heard of Aaron would ever believe that. Even the seasoned homicide detectives were stunned. I personally felt disgusted from all the people we talked to who knew Aaron. We didn't think this was even an angle Christopher Lee would play, explained Detective Jonathan Woods. This came out of left field. In his closing arguments, Kalanides urged the jury to consider the lesser charge of manslaughter while deliberating, given that it was a crime of passion provoked by the defendant's love of his child. The prosecution called this tactic asinine garbage. Which is exactly what it is. Also, I'm going to start saying that. Whenever anyone says something, I'll be like, asinine garbage. So the jury did not buy his story. They broke for two hours, but only needed to deliberate for 15 minutes. They said later they wanted to have one last lunch break together before they delivered the verdict. Amazing. <laughs> They're like, we're all agreed, right? Yep. Which yep. Was uh, sushi? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. One last lunch together, guys, for good time's sake. So the verdict was guilty of first degree murder with the special circumstance of lying in wait. They did not buy his shit for a second. The jury foreman revealed later that they only had one vote and it was unanimously guilty right from the beginning. Christopher Lee was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Amazing. Thank God. On, thank God. On November 29th, 2016. He, I feel like I'd be content if every case we covered ended with an LWAP. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm still reeling from last week. Worried yeah. about her getting out, you know? I, know. Uh, I mean, there's some, there's some, you know, we often feel sympathy for like kind of the dupes that get put up to murder though sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. But the masterminds definitely deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. He will spend the rest of his life as inmate number BB8171 at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. As of Shanna Hogan's publication of Secrets of a Marine's Wife in 2019, Nicole and Chris remain married. Law, oh. 
Yep. Law enforcement and the prosecution team and Shanna herself still believe Nicole may have had knowledge or more to do with the murder than we know. Hmm. But I mean, if she wasn't out there killing her, it's like. It's just so hard to prove. And it doesn't, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. And but actually, yeah. Like secretly kind of, it's probably better that Liberty has her mom. Exactly. Even though it know. sounds like Nicole was a, a terrible piece of work, but it's better to have a, a parent who loves yeah. you, even if they were willing to paint you as a sexual abuse victim in order Ugh. to get daddy to beat his murder rap. Oh, yeah. So the prosecutor said basically he called Nicole into his uh, chambers and was like, you know, we're going to have to put Liberty on the stand now. And she was like, why? And it's like, because you guys concocted this story. And she's like, I'll, I will. Basically, she said she was going to testify for the defense, but she would refuse to testify for the prosecution if they called her up. And then she like tried to talk to a jury member. It was like, Nicole was real messy during the the trial. But eventually the prosecutor was like, I'm not going to do this to a child. Like if her parents are willing to traumatize her and feed her these stories Ugh. and tell her she was abused and make her lie on the stand, I'm not going to be the one that makes her, her have there. trauma for the rest of her life and questions her. And also in his in his defense too, just as a prosecutor, that looks bad. It does not look good to like be like questioning a six-year-old about no. her abuse. That was like, did you watch The Undoing yet? No, I haven't seen it. We watched it in like one night, like legit watched all six episodes in one night. We just binged it and they put this little boy on the stand. He's like 10 and it's horrible. Oh, it just, and they're even like gross. so sweet to him just trying to get the truth and it's still like oh like you watch it and it just makes your skin crawl it's it's truly devastating so i'm really glad that they didn't try to interview liberty yeah. on the stand john corwin has since remarried he met a woman in his hometown of oak ridge tennessee where he is now happily employed as a welder oh yeah Lore and the Hevelin family still keep in touch with many of the detectives and rescue volunteers to this day. Both now in retirement, Lore and Bill spend their time visiting their children and grandchildren. Caver Doug Billings erected a memorial garden for Erin in the same desolate place where she took her last breath, about 20 miles southeast of 29 Palms. There lays a black notebook in a waterproof can. In it, visitors leave messages of love for Erin and the Hevelin family. Oh, this is. Since the trial, hundreds of locals and dozens of volunteers and detectives who helped solve her murder have hiked to the garden to leave gifts of purple garden windmills and sculptures of horses. One person donated a plaque with the words, and with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye, then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. Mm. So rest in peace, Aaron. A beautiful soul taken way too soon. 19 years old is not a life. Two. Two, two souls. Yeah. That poor baby didn't ever have a chance. I know. How far along was it, though? It was only like a few weeks. I think it was only a few weeks, which I think is why it was also difficult to get evidence and DNA evidence from her. Yeah. Because yeah. they're so tiny when they're little. Remember when we first started like recording our pregnancy? It was a little poppy seed. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can't believe they're like three and a half pounds now. Now mine's a platypus. (laughs) (laughs) 
That was like last week, Gus was a rollerblade. I was like, a rollerblade is huge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was a heavy story. Yeah, you know, just at 8.30 (laughs) a.m. We're recording this one. We usually do it like at night, guys. Just really wanted to screw Andy's day up. I'm going to take a nap now, I think. It's one sixteen here now. Alden's napping. I'm going to take a nap too. Well, if you guys liked that one, uh, please let us know. Write us a review. Uh, we'll send you some really cool stickers. Remember to check out the merch store as well. And of course, a big thank you to Eugenie for recommending this story. If you do have any story ideas, especially if they come accompanied with a book, you guys know I love to read, send them to lovers at lovemurder.love or DM us. In conclusion... Don't go on a surprise hike to a remote vista with your married affair partner, especially if you just told him you're pregnant. Bad things are going to happen, guys. Nine times out of ten. It's it's the baby daddy. There is definitely no non-murdery use of a garage. No, there's not. Clear. Yeah, there's, it's not something to carry around with you in your back pocket. Don't do yeah. it. They're not cute. Nobody likes them. And as always, remember, we are all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Thanks for listening, guys. Happy 2021. madly in love when you're 18, you know, give it a couple years.